maybe around the world. And thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter U.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is JewsforJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobach. So good to be here, Jono, again. Wonderful to have you once again, my friend. We're recovering from Isaiah chapter 53. Boy, they were great programs. Uh, We went through that. If listeners didn't catch it, it's in three parts. The last three programs were all about Isaiah chapter 53. Now, if you've missed any of these programs and you'd like to go back and listen to them all, all you need to do is just go to the search engine and put in the number 365, 365, and they will all come up. And uh, so that's what we're doing. We're continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. And uh, we've got, uh, well, there's a few more that uh, belong to the book of Isaiah. We're working through the latter chapters of Isaiah now. And on the New Revised Standard Version, which is the, uh, uh, thank you to Carmen Welker of the Refiner's Fire, uh, she has trimmed it down a little bit for us, and we're kicking off from her list, number 217, Michael. Okay. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. It begins with the word, ho! Ho! That's what it is in the, in the New King James, at least. H-O, exclamation mark, ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine, buy milk, without money and without price. Now, the corresponding verse in the New Testament, John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And who believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Michael. Well, you know, it was interesting. We were just discussing before the show that, um, you know, when we were studying together Isaiah 53, you had a sense that there was something worth responding to, that there was really... Um, there were so some the, fireworks in those programs. Well, the, you know, the passages in Isaiah there really resonate uh, strongly with the Christian message. You know, mm-hmm. you, you could see that... Um, you know, there's there's some correspondence, at least, between uh, what Christians uh, teach in the, in the New Testament and those, you know, that that long chapter in Isaiah that that uh, those verses we studied. But here, you know, we can look at a, a number of passages where you just have to scratch your head and wonder what mm. in the world are they talking about? And so, when Isaiah says here, um, you know, everyone who's thirsty come well why is that meaningful meaning that what does it mean that's that that jesus fulfilled something that says everyone who's thirsty come first of all um it's almost impossible to walk away from this chapter of isaiah and think that this verse is a messianic prophecy is a prophecy about the messiah um it's clearly not and not even my hyperactive open bible study bible awards it a star for being a messianic prophecy. My New King James Version Study Bible does not look at it as a messianic prophecy. So it's just, you know, in terms of a list of serious messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, this doesn't make it onto the list of being a messianic prophecy. Um, Furthermore, it would really be meaningless as a prophecy. What does it mean to say, you know, that uh, everyone who's thirsty is going to come uh, it doesn't point to any particular person. You know, I, I gave a class tonight to uh, Bnei Noach, to Noachites, 
mm-hmm. and they were thirsty for what we were discussing in the class. Um, you know, it's such a vague uh, description that everyone who's thirsty let them come. Um, it, it really becomes meaningless as uh, a prophecy that would point to anyone in particular. And unfortunately, I think we're going to encounter a few of those uh, in this program. That's going to be the the, the, the theme of the evening. Uh, it's going to be the theme of the evening. It's going to be the theme. It's going to be <laughs> basically like, what in the world are they trying to, to do is here? It, is it because, let me ask you, is it because uh, believers of the New Testament have a different definition as to what, first of all, what a prophecy is, secondly, what an answer to prophecy is? Because what we see a lot of is in from it, it seems like, from a New Testament believer's perspective, here are some words or some phrases or even a passage that is reminiscent in, in the Tanakh that is reminiscent of words, phrases, or passage, even concepts or topics in or themes in the New Testament. Therefore, it it is uh, equated to a prophecy fulfilled. That's what seems to be going on. It, that's exactly that's exactly what happens. You can see, you know, anyone that would just look at the um, titles of the prophecies in this list, you can see precisely what uh, was going through the mind of the list maker. They they were reading through the Hebrew scriptures, and any time there was a word, a phrase, or a concept or an idea that triggered some kind of an association. Uh, with Jesus or with, you know, the mission of Jesus or anything having to do with Jesus, then that becomes elevated, it becomes transformed, uh, you know, sort of, it becomes, miraculously becomes a messianic prophecy. And, mm. you know, again, I think we said the very first uh, time we, we sat down together when we had our rules of engagement, mm. that's not how you read the Bible, meaning that you don't read the Bible from Revelation back towards Genesis. You don't start with your conclusion, like in Alice in Wonderland, first they had the verdict and then the trial. Mm. That's not how you, you know, that's a disaster for understanding the Hebrew Scriptures. You have to basically start with the Hebrew Scriptures without any preconception. You have to imagine, really, to understand what is really being said in the prophets, you have to read them as if you were reading them 150 years BCE. Mm. Without you know this sort of without putting Jesus glasses on, you know if you're wearing Jesus glasses, you're going to see Jesus wherever you look, and mm. that doesn't help you. It's sort of it's it it um, it it's really um, distorts your your clarity of vision mm. when you're reading the Hebrew scriptures. So if you read from Genesis forward uh, without having Jesus glasses on, without having uh, this sort of um, framework with which you read the Hebrew Scriptures. And by the way, Christians have every right to do that. There's no reason why they can't begin the process of studying the Hebrew Scriptures with their you know, uh, axiomatic belief that Jesus was the Messiah and then try to find correspondences to that in the Jewish Bible. But mm. it doesn't give them really any solid grounding in, in making the claim that these are actually prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. They're not. Um, these are passages that, in general, we've seen are not prophecies. They're certainly not messianic prophecies, and they've become elevated by the Christian into a messianic prophecy because it sounds like Jesus. And, of course, you know, we have to appreciate that, you know, for, for an honest reading of the Hebrew Scriptures, who cares if it sounds like Jesus because we don't know at the outset that Jesus was who Christians assume he, he is. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that if we 
really study the Bible in the order in which it should be studied, I mean, beginning with Genesis and going forward, mm-hmm. um, and not having this lens with which we superimpose upon the Hebrew Bible, I think that that's all people really need to do to gain some clarity in terms of what the, these texts are really describing. Uh, one of the things that we're going to go back, we're going we're to see happens a lot tonight is to ask the question, look, we, we began by just seeing this is not a messianic prophecy, and it, it would be meaningless if it was, because it doesn't point to any particular person. Um, but then we're going to see another question that needs to be asked tonight, which is if we accept the Christian premise, you know, or the Christian claim, that it is a messianic prophecy, um, then we have to ask the question, well, how do we know then that Jesus fulfilled it? What's the evidence mm. that he fulfilled it? And so here, what the list maker points us to is John chapter 7, um, where on the last day of the festival, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, he should come to me. Now, really what it's saying is that the prophecy was that the Messiah is going to be someone who people come to because they're thirsty. And what's the fulfillment? That Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me. Now, even if we accept the premise that Isaiah 55.1 is a messianic prophecy, how is that fulfilled by Jesus inviting people to come to him if they're thirsty? Mm. Um, and then the second verse that's quoted here um, is a verse that doesn't even exist in the Hebrew Bible. It says that mm. one who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, will have streams of living waters flowing from deep within them. That doesn't exist in the Hebrew scriptures. Which is, which is extremely problematic because here we have Jesus saying, uh, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said. Right, and uh, this is one of those examples where there's no such scripture. But again, what it boils down to in terms of the list maker here is that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy essentially because he's inviting people to come to him. Mm. Um, It would have been even better if you had a passage where you have all these thirsty people coming to Jesus, but that doesn't Mm. even happen here. And if that was the case, all we would have, and this is going to be the repetitious theme from tonight, all you would have is the fulfillment rests upon simply the claim that the New Testament says so, meaning that Mm. the the Old Testament makes a prophecy, and how do we know Jesus fulfilled it? The New Testament said so. Mm. Um, So that's going to be, you know, one of the the barometers we're going to have to look at tonight. Number one, are we really looking at messianic prophecy? Number two, does it clearly and exclusively point to Jesus? And number three, What's the evidence that he really fulfilled it? The next one on the list is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. I love this verse because we have a a verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, nobody comes to the Father except by me, as if he's some sort of, you know, bouncer at the door. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. But here in this verse, God is saying, incline your ear and come to me, it begins. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. The apparent fulfillments of this in the New Testament is uh, we're given Acts chapter 13, verse 34, and it says, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Michael. Well, this is really uh, <laughs> a mouthful. First of all, the, the list maker is claiming that the prophecy in Isaiah 55.3 is that the Messiah, Jesus, would be resurrected by God. Mm. So, the first thing to remember is that this passage is not seen as a messianic prophecy, even in my open Bible study Bible. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. how vague this passage would be. 
The other thing is that this verse says absolutely nothing about uh, resurrection. Um, I'm not sure how they how they d- extract the idea of the Messiah being resurrected here. So number one problem, it's not about the Messiah. Number two problem, it's not speaking about anyone's resurrection. And the third thing, which is that if we study this passage in Isaiah carefully, chapter 55, the beginning, it's not about an individual. It's very clearly from the context speaking about all the people in the previous and succeeding verses, Mm. that these are people who are supposed to put their trust in God and turn back to God in repentance. Um, You know, the the verse says, bend your ear and come to me, listen and your soul will live. It's not speaking about one person. This is an invitation that God is really extending to everyone. In verse 1, when it says, all who are thirsty, come, it's interesting, by the way, because when Jesus allegedly quoted the verse, he didn't quote it really accurately. Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me. Isaiah actually says, anyone who's thirsty, let them go to the water. And so the water is usually interpreted and understood. And actually, there are all kinds of foods and delicacies here. They're all understood as not really speaking about H2O and uh, bread right. and wine. But these are expressions about what God nourishes us with, which is his word, mm. his teachings, his Torah. So the invitation here is anyone who's hungry should come to the Torah as a way of coming closer to God. And the the theme of these verses is that um, if we do this, if we bend our ear and come to God and we listen to him and we turn to him, then our souls will live. Then we'll be able to have a relationship with God. Um, this is not really speaking about the Messiah being resurrected. That's sort of coming out of left field and really has no Mm, place here. Very much so. The next one on the list is verse 4 of the same chapter. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Corresponding verse is John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Okay. And apparently this (laughs) list claims that the uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled is a witness. Well, so what it seems to be saying is that the Messiah would be a witness. Um, A witness about what? A witness. I mean, it becomes so vague to just say that, that that the, uh, the Messiah is a witness. We see from verse 3 here that the passage is speaking um, about David, and and really Mm -hmm. not just David, but obviously and all of the descendants of David in the royal line. And uh, we saw in previous uh, programs that it's not really necessarily that clear that Jesus is uh, a descendant of this royal line. I mean, that's something which is very difficult to ascertain there certainly seems to be evidence that Jesus may not have been, but it's it's certainly not clear that Jesus can lay claim to being part of the the royal line from David. Now, it's quite possible, I would say, that this verse in Isaiah is at least including a reference to the Messiah, who will be a descendant of David. Um, So let's take it to that extreme. Let's assume that this verse is a reference to the Messiah, um, mm-hmm. But there's no reason to assume that it's automatically speaking about Jesus, meaning that you'd have a verse here in Isaiah which makes reference to this descendant of David 
who would be the Messiah. But the question would be, well, how do we know that it's speaking about Jesus? Because Jesus failed to fulfill even one of the basic and indisputable messianic prophecies. So it's pretty clear that he wasn't the Messiah. Now, the fulfillment here that the, the list maker uh, puts forward is mm-hmm. basically Jesus claiming to be the king. You know, and he, he says that he's a witness. So, again, does that really mean that he fulfilled these, this prophecy mm. um, simply because he makes the claim that he, he did? You know, th- that becomes very problematic because what it would set up for us is a, a criteria for fulfillment of messianic prophecy that's just too easy to fulfill, meaning that you'd have um, a prophecy that anyone could fulfill simply by saying, I did it. Um, that's right. So, um, you know, let's say, that, that, let's say there was a prophecy that said, the Messiah will come, and then Bob Jones comes along and says, I'm the Messiah, and that, he must have fulfilled that prophecy. Th- that's really the problem here, that, that the mm. list maker is constantly appealing to passages in the New Testament where either the gospel writer or Jesus makes an assertion or makes a claim. Mm. And it sort, of, it, it sort of begs the question because, you know, the real question is, you know, where are the goods? You know, we used to have the commercial, where's mm. the beef? Um, mm. It's not enough to just say I'm the Messiah. What a person needs to do is to actually fulfill the biblical criteria for who the Messiah would be and what he would do. The next one on the list uh, jumps to Isaiah chapter 59. Before we get there, Michael, if it's okay, because it's very hard to jump over big passages in Isaiah because it's such a, so much gold in here. Um, Isaiah chapter 55, I just want to read it from verse 6 and on. It says, Seek the Lord when he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the, the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love that. Now, those words are so beautiful to hear, mm. and they're, mm. they're so delicious. You know, you, you have there, um, you know, it's, it's one of many, many passages in the prophets that just speak about this simple invitation. I would say it's the good news. It's a simple, mm. It's mm. A simple invitation that God, you know, holds out his hand and says, look, children, just come back to me. Um, and that's the the consistent message and teaching throughout the Hebrew Scriptures that anyone that goes off the path, anyone that strays, simply can just get right back on the path. Come back, yeah. repent, forsake the things that you've been doing wrong, and come back to God. And it says he will have mercy on you and he will abundantly pardon. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I just couldn't jump over it. The next one on the list is Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 and 16. It says, so truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Now, according to the list, the corresponding verse is John chapter 6, verse 40, and it says, uh, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the, on the last day. Michael. So, this passage uh, in Isaiah 59 is certainly not about the Messiah. It's very clearly describing how God himself, the Almighty, would save Israel, just as he saved us from our Egyptian oppression. 
Mm-hmm. And we see this theme that's really um, runs throughout the Bible and especially through the book of Isaiah. We saw previously in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, where God will show his mighty arm and we're told that the entire world will see the salvation of our God. I mean, that, mm. that, that Isaiah is always describing how the Jewish people are suffering in their exile, but that ultimately God himself would redeem the Jewish people in the same way, by the way, that it wasn't Moses who redeemed us from Egypt. And so in the same way, it's not going to be the Messiah who really redeems us. It's going to be God who redeems us. And just as Moses was God's instrument, the Messiah will as well be God's instrument. And so this passage here in 59, chapter 59, is speaking mm-hmm. about how God will save Israel from their enemies. But the, the critical thing is that the list maker speaks about the Messiah coming to provide salvation. Mm. And what's very clear is that this passage is not speaking about salvation in the sense of that Christians understand the term salvation uh, to mean forgiveness and redemption from sin. Um, this is clearly speaking about the same way that the word salvation is used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that it refers to God rescuing his people from physical and political danger and, and, uh, and problems. Um, so that's really the, 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 another issue that's going to come up repeatedly tonight is that the list maker seems to um, read the Hebrew scriptures with a Christian dictionary, meaning that um, whenever the word salvation comes up, that sort of has a certain Christian association in the same way we mm. saw that in Matthew 1 verse 21 – they say that Jesus was called Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Mm. Uh, that's a, a, a New Testament spin on the word salvation and saving. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Hebrew Scriptures, it doesn't deal with someone being saved from their sins. It deals with salvation is um, rescue from political and physical danger. Now, the list maker also uses the same passage, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 to 16, uh, to uh, well, the heading given on on this uh, particular prophecy fulfilled, so the list claims is that there would be an intercessor between man and God, and it has listed Matthew chapter ten verse thirty two. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. We have to say in the same way Isaiah fifty five said ho, so I have to say <laughs> I have to say oi. First of all, (laughs) Isaiah 59 here says that there was no intercessor. I have to read the the passage for God's sake. Well, let's have a look at it again in a minute. (laughs) So it says, uh, uh, this is verse 16, and uh, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Let me just ask you, let's, let's just clarify here in verse 16, whose arm brought salvation for, who is the him? God. That it's, it's referring to the Almighty. So his own arm brought salvation for God. Not for God. Ah, so who is the him? His for? own arm brought salvation for his people. Ah, now let me just tell you about a little bit of the trickery that we find in the Christian text, because what we find, in, at least in the New King James, 
is that the him at the end of that sentence is capitalized and uh, and it goes on to say and his own righteousness it sustained him it's capitalized again so it is either suggesting that that him is god or that that him is jesus well that would be strange because that would be saying then that it was god's arm that brought salvation to jesus that jesus needed saving um, that's what it's suggesting. Yeah, the, I, well, and le- yeah. I mean, that's, that must be what it's saying because it doesn't capitalize unless it's implying some sort of deity. Yeah, I mean, I think what the list maker is is trying to assert here is that Jesus becomes the intercessor between man and God. Um, but what Isaiah is saying, um, strangely, is that not that there's going to be an intercessor. <laughs> Isaiah says the exact opposite: that there is no intercessor, and that's exactly mm. why. The passage here says that God himself will save us. There's not going to be anyone else doing it for God. Um, in the same way that, you know, God said in Egypt, you know, it was I who redeemed you. No angels and no one else. It's just me, myself, is going to take care of my people. Um, and again, the, the fulfillment here is rests upon um, either what the New Testament claims Jesus said or what Jesus actually said, mm. you know, that he is going to be the one to acknowledge us before God if we acknowledge him. Um, so, you know, even if we accept the claim that Isaiah is saying there's going to be an intercessor, so the proof that Jesus fulfilled it is that he said he's the intercessor, which is strange. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really... Unless someone already begins their, their journey exploring these passages with a commitment to a belief in Jesus, it doesn't really have any kind of strong, we, we would call it um, probative value. It doesn't, there's no proof here simply because the New Testament asserts that it's true. Mm. Um, but the main problem with this passage in the 59 chapter of Isaiah is that it, it's, it's not speaking about the idea that, that God's going to provide some middleman, some intercessor mm. um, between himself and his people. It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying that there's yep. going to be no intercessor and God himself will be saving us. The, uh, we're going to stick with Isaiah chapter 59, jump to verse 20. It says, The Redeemer shall come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Corresponding verse according to the list is Luke chapter 2 verse 38. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, the uh, the prophecy fulfilled according to the list is that he would come to Zion as their redeemer. This is a bit odd. Michael, what can we do with it? Uh, this needs a lot of rehabilitative therapy. Uh, <laughs> Um, first of all, I have to say, you know, this is this has not been something we've said a lot in these weeks that we're studying. You know, ding, 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 ding. This is an actual, bona fide, genuine, indisputable messianic prophecy. This, wow. Yes, indeed. This verse. <laughs> this might be the third or fourth one we've come up with out of two hundred twenty-two. Awesome. So it actually it is speaking about the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, but. Unfortunately for Jesus, it's not him because he did not redeem Israel. Meaning what the verse is saying is that God's going to send a redeemer to Israel. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear when we read Isaiah that it's a redeemer of the people of Israel from their oppression, from their exile, from their low state in the world. It's not speaking at all about the Messiah who will redeem us from our sins. We'll see that clearly in a moment. It's interesting that when Romans quotes this verse in Isaiah, Romans mangles it 
Um, first by speaking about the Redeemer coming from Zion, where Isaiah spoke about the Redeemer coming to Zion. Two. But more importantly, in Romans, Paul changes this text to say that the Redeemer will come to remove ungodliness from Jacob. And what Isaiah says is that this Redeemer will come to those in Jacob who turn from their sins. Meaning that that in throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, actually, it's not just here in Isaiah, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the program, the salvation program of the Bible, is that Israel is expected to turn from their sins, turn toward God in a national revival. And, mm-hmm. and as a response to that, as a response to Israel basically returning to their destiny as God's chosen people and living according to his will, God will then send the Redeemer. And that's exactly what Isaiah says, that the Redeemer will come to Zion to those among Jacob who've turned from their sins. Paul can't tolerate that because for Paul, if we could turn from our sins, then Jesus died in vain. He says that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, that if we could be righteous by following the Torah, then Jesus died in vain. So Paul is forced to then basically transform, change, really distort what Isaiah says um, and speak about this Redeemer coming to remove the ungodliness from Jacob because Paul assumes that we cannot do it mm. ourselves. What's fascinating is that the proof text here that Luke, uh, qu- that's quoted in Luke, yeah. um, this 84-year-old widow um, comes, yeah. right, and she begins to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Mm. Now, how does that prove that... How re- does that relate to Jesus at all? It seems to be a tiny little passage within the narrative, which is sort of like a side note, uh, and it has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. No, because again, what it's speaking about, and, and I think that it's a beautiful passage, mm. is that what we're looking forward to is the redemption of Jerusalem. Looking forward to, it's not, even Luke here seems to, you know, make it clear it hasn't happened yet. And if you want to find an interesting parallel passage in Luke, if you go to the 24th chapter of Luke in the 21st verse, mm-hmm. um, after the crucifixion of Jesus. 21st verse. But we were hoping, we were hoping, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's what they said. Indeed, today it is the third day since these things have happened. Yeah, so that was their expectation, meaning that the the disciples, they were not expecting Jesus to come and die for their sins. What they were hoping for, what their understanding was, that if he was their Messiah, he was going to redeem Israel. And this 84-year-old widow, right, she was also looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. It wasn't saying that you know, what we're talking about here is something that's vertical, sort of a redemption of the world from their sins if they would believe in him. This is not speaking about that the world will be forgiven for sins. It's the redemption of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, and we see that in Luke 24. We actually see it also in the book of Acts, I think in the first chapter, where after the crucifixion, and they, they report on their sightings of Jesus, they ask him the very first question. They say, Lord, at this time will you redeem Israel? Mm. Restore the kingdom to Israel, I believe. It's in chapter 1, yeah. verse 16. So that was clearly what was expected, and that was, a, that was the correct expectation. And uh, that was exactly what didn't happen, and therefore what ultimately takes place within the, uh, the development of Christianity as a religion separate from biblical Judaism is a rewriting, sort of a, a re-scripting mm. of the whole 
purpose of the messianic uh, program, you know, it's 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 sort of switched. It's 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 switched over from a physical, political, historical, horizontal program of redemption to a mm. spiritual, uh, vertical program of redemption redemption from sin. Um, which really is just not what Isaiah here is speaking about. The next one on the list is Isaiah chapter 60. We're in the 60s now, uh, verses 1 to 3. Oh, Don't wow. forget, Jono, so, if you remember the 60s, then you weren't in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> okay, and it says... Arise, shine, for the light has come, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isn't that reminiscent of uh, the end of chapter 52? Yes, indeed. Um, Mm. I love this chapter of Isaiah. It's one of my favorites in the book. Um, And again, the the list maker here frames this as nations walk in the light. And the assumption from the Christological list maker is that it's describing the nations walking in the light of Jesus, in the light of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, again, this is a messianic prophecy in the sense that it's describing something that will only take place in the messianic future, but it's not speaking about the person of the Messiah. This chapter here is speaking very clearly about how the nations of the world will come to the light of the people of Israel. Mm. Um, we see in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6 that um, Israel, the Jewish people, are a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Mm. And this chapter 60 is very clearly speaking about the nation, because verse 4 speaks about your sons, verse 9 about your children. Um, so anyone that's been reading these chapters of Isaiah understands that it's really describing here, um, you know, the sort of the denouement of history, that throughout the, the Bible, the Jewish people were given this assignment to be God's witnesses, to be God's light to the nations, to be God's uh, chosen people, to be a nation of priests and a holy, king, a holy kingdom and a nation of priests. That's been their historical mandate. And finally, you have in Isaiah chapter 60, the Bible saying, and you know what? And one day it's going to happen. One day the nations will turn to the light that you're supposed to be sharing with them. You see this in Zechariah chapter 8 which speaks about 10 people from every nation of the world coming and grabbing hold of a Jew Mm. and saying, we want to follow you, we've heard God is with you. Mm. Um, So that's what this is describing. It's not speaking about somehow the Messiah attracting followers to himself. And you know what I would say, this may be controversial, but I'm not sure that even if I was reading this from a Christian point of view, that we could say that the nations today are walking in the light of Jesus. It's easy to understand why Christians would believe that, but I think it may be a gross distortion sure. since I think that Jesus himself has been grossly distorted by mm. the New Testament writers and, and by later Christian theologians. Um, so I suspect that the one that Christians um, look to as Jesus may have very, very little uh, you know, congruence with who Jesus actually was. 
Um, you know, it's so interesting that for so many centuries, Christians didn't even know that Jesus was a Jew. And mm. uh, now I think it's less of a secret. But the idea, the possibility that Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew, um, would, even today would shock um, so many people that follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that sort of this glib assertion that Christians assume, you know, they assume that, you know, they are, you know, following exactly who Jesus was. They know exactly who Jesus was. The truth is that Christians are following the Jesus, I would say, primarily of Paul, who never met Jesus. Mm. Um, and it's not so simple to me to just make the claim that the nations are walking in his light. By the way, in terms of fulfillment, so the fulfillment of this, uh, that you know, the nations are walking in his light, um, is from this passage in Luke chapter 2, where Simon just makes a proclamation, right? It's, it's again, how do we know that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy? Again, it's not a prophecy. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3 is not about the Messiah. It's not a prophecy about the Messiah. But even if it were, so what's the proof that Jesus fulfilled it? Again, it boils down to a proclamation that Simon allegedly said. Um, Mm. Again, you know, as someone who is not approaching these texts as a Christian, uh, to me, it doesn't prove the case. The next, uh, the next four deal with Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to, uh, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God uh, to comfort all who mourn. Now, there's a number of... Okay, so according to the list, we've got a few here, Michael. There is the uh, the Spirit of God is upon him. That's one uh, prophecy fulfilled, apparently. The Messiah would preach the good news. That's another one. uh, Provide freedom from the bondage and sin, uh, bondage of sin and death. And proclaim a period of grace. Now, if I jump to the end of the of this uh, list of four, it gives us Luke chapter four, where this is where uh, Jesus was in the synagogue and he got up to read and he read this very passage. So he read the passage, he sat down, and then uh, everyone was looking at him and he said to them in uh, Luke four twenty, he says, "Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." What is this scripture about? What is this passage about? So the 61st chapter of Isaiah is not about the Messiah. The speaker here is saying that the Spirit of God is on me because God has anointed me to bring this news to the poor. This is understood almost universally by Jewish interpreters as referring to Isaiah himself. And actually, um, numerous Christian uh, scholars make the same identification. They say, based upon the text... Um, there's no reason to assume it's anyone other than Isaiah speaking about himself. Uh, I found this in the New American Bible Study Bible and the New Interpreter Study Bible. It, there's plenty of reasons to just take the text at its simplest level where the, the speaker, Isaiah, is speaking about himself as having been anointed to bring the news, this news. So that's the most important thing to beginning to understand that mm-hmm. the, the subject of this chapter, the beginning of the chapter at least, is the prophet himself. Now, what's the proof that Jesus fulfilled this? Well, again, it boils down to 
of the New Testament saying so. In Matthew chapter 3, that's the first proof text that's brought here in number 224, it speaks about Jesus being baptized by John the baptizer, and when he comes up from the water, the heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming down mm. upon him, and a voice coming from heaven, this is my beloved Son, I take delight in him. So that's the proof that the Spirit of God was upon him. Um, you know, again, the, the proof simply is because the New Testament says so. And the problem is that um, you could apply this to really anyone who you think has the Spirit of God upon them. I mean, I, I unfortunately sometimes watch too much Christian television. And uh, <laughs> everybody, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is claiming that the Spirit of God's upon them. Yeah, uh, It's not so unusual. Um, no. So... You know, again, it's number one, it's not really a prophecy about the Messiah. Number two, if it was, there's no proof that Jesus fulfilled it. Mm. Um, the, the second one here is that the Messiah would preach the good news. Um, so, again, it's not about the Messiah, it's about Isaiah, God's prophet. The other thing is, you know, the, the list maker uses this catchphrase, this sort of Christianese catchphrase of the good news, as if it had some uh, particular currency in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the language does not say good news. It's not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew just speaks about the, the prophet bringing tidings or report or news. Now, mm. it's true that the news happens to be good news, but the text does not refer to it as good news. Um, and again, in the Christian mindset, the automatic assumption is that what is good news? It's the gospel. And what is the gospel? That Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. Um, so that's clearly not what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is not speaking about the Messiah coming and dying for your sins. Um, mm. So that's not the good news that Isaiah is, is preaching about. Isaiah here is just simply speaking about the fact that the nation, the people, uh, will be redeemed. You know, It's describing very, very terrestrial kind of changes in the world order. It's not describing the fact that all their sins are going to be somehow forgiven if they believe in the death of the Messiah. Um, and again, the, the fulfillment that they quote here is Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where it says, The Spirit of God's upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So again, it boils down to, again, just simply the assertion of Jesus, Jesus making the claim. The, the 20, 226th says that the, this, uh, they claim the Messiah will provide freedom from the bondage of sin and death. Well, when you read the Hebrew here, even an English translation of the Hebrew, it doesn't mention anything about bondage to sin and mm. death. It's just something that's it's, it's not there. Not there. Um, mm. And then again, how do we know Jesus did this? How do we know Jesus was able to bring freedom from sin and death? I mean, as far as I know, this has not stopped even among Christians in the world. Um, Christians still sin, Christians still die, not more or less than other people in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, the proof text is that so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will the set truth you shall... free. Mm. Now, that doesn't say that he redeemed anyone from the bondage of sin and death. Um, that's sort of um, taking a leap it's, it's sort of making a jump um, in terms of the fulfillment of this alleged prophecy. But again, mm. Isaiah says nothing about people being um, redeemed from the bondage of sin and death. No. Um, and also, just remember that what you see here going on is a re 
formatting of the messianic program to be an invisible one. You know, the, the, the main feature of true, genuine messianic prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures is that they're all visible. You can actually see with your own eyes mm-hmm. whether or not they've been fulfilled. You can see the ingathering of the exiles. You can see the rebuilding of the temple. You can see the universal disarmament. You can see the Jewish people teaching the nations of the world. You can see you know, people uh, who now devote their lives to God. You can see an ending of war in the world. You can see peace in the world. I mean, these are all elements that can be actually perceived um, hmm. and, and tested. You, you see here, you know, the messianic program now has to be shifted to an invisible realm because Jesus simply didn't fulfill the biblical program of the Messiah. So, how do we know that someone redeemed us from the bondage of sin? That's something that you have to basically accept on faith. There's no way mm-hmm. of measuring it or proving it. So I think this is the last one of the four, which is that there'll be yep. a proclamation of a period of grace. Again, it's another one of those Christian Christianese words. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that Christians have a certain association with this word grace, um, what it means. It doesn't obviously appear in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, first of all, we should say that the, the list maker here is sort of misunderstanding the Hebrew. There isn't really a period of time that the, um, that the prophet here is describing. It, it seems like what the list maker is assuming is that there's going to be this limited period of grace um, hmm. for a particular amount of time. Because it says in the Hebrew, a year of favor. That's the Hebrew word, really. Now, the, the year of favor, just to clarify, we're talking about say, the, the Yovel year, the year no, of Jubilee, is that, I or, think, the, I think or the Shemitah? That, no, I, I think that it's describing um, you know, a year or a day in the sense of a, a new era, a new epoch. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a specific time, a limited period of time, but it's the beginning of a new kind of world, a new epoch in the history of the world. Like we find, for example, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. On that day, God will be one and his name will be one. Mm-hmm. So it's describing a new world order. It's not describing you know, a, a period of time within the current world order. It's saying that, you know, this isn't. Is let, me, let me just. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know that a lot of Christians just shuddered then when you said that. You said it's describing yes. a new world order. And yes. of course, that's, that's what they fear. They fear a new world order and they think that the Jews are out to create a new world order and this is an evil thing, according to the book of Revelation in the last. Uh, uh, latter chapters of Matthew and and uh, and this new world order we will see as as the Tanakh tells us there will be the uh, there will be the high priest and there will be the Mashiach there will be both Mashiach the high priest and the king uh, operating in the temple and they'll view that as the Antichrist I, I read a, an an article just recently saying you know it, it is possible that the third temple may come back the new, the temple may come back the altar will go hot there'll be sacrifices made and then we'll see the man of sins you know the the abomination of desolation and so on and so forth it's very isn't that, different isn't that weird what, what's it's weird, super weird what's it's almost ironic when you think about it that 2000 years ago jesus came and the jewish people understood that he didn't fulfill the biblical criteria for the messiah so 2000 years ago the jewish world basically understood Jesus was not the Messiah. Hmm. Then we have the, the true Messiah finally coming. One of the things the Bible describes him as doing is bringing upon the world uh, a peri- uh, you know, world of peace, universal disarmament. Nation will not lift up you know, a sword against nation. They'll not learn hmm. war anymore. 
and because the Christian world, or at least part of the Christian world, assumes that uh, part of the portfolio of the Antichrist is that he's going to bring peace to the world, so the irony is that when the true Messiah comes, many Christians are going to assume that he's the Antichrist. It, mm. it, it, it sort of boggles the mind. Um, it really does. But, but the, um, the word here, grace, I wanted to focus on for a moment. Because it's a very loaded word in, in Christian, Christianese. Mm. Um, the Hebrew is the word ratzon. That's the word that's used here, ratzon. Oh, ratzon. Okay. Yeah, which ratzon means, if the, this, the best kind of translation would be goodwill or favor. You see in, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 24, um, the blessing about Asher, when the tribe of Asher was being mm -hmm. blessed, the blessing was, may Asher be the most blessed of the sons, May he be the most favored among the brothers, Ratsui, from the word Ratzon, uh -huh. and dip his foot in olive oil. So what we're being told here in Isaiah chapter 61 is that what is going to be this new era, this new period of time? It's going to be a period of time where God's goodwill to Israel will become manifest and clear to the entire world. That's all it's describing. It's, it's not speaking about grace in a sense in which the Christian world might associate with, this, with the uh, impact of that word. Um, I'm not even sure I could describe it and paint it accurately. Mm. Again, did Jesus fulfill this? Did Jesus bring this about? So, again, all you really have is the, um, this passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus makes the proclamation. Um, that it happened, that it's true. Um, there's not, there's not more than that. The uh, the next one on the list is Isaiah chapter sixty two verse eleven. It says, "Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work." before him corresponding verse <laughs> i love this passage the corresponding verse is uh, matthew chapter 21 verses 5 to 7 tell the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey so the disciples went uh, and did as jesus commanded them they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and uh, set him on them on both the donkey and the colt that's pretty. Michael. That's pretty awkward. Uh, I love that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a circus act. I, I'd be cheering as well. I reckon that's pretty clever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, what is Isaiah speaking about here? Isaiah is saying, um, and this very well could be a messianic prophecy. Um, I would say it is mm -hmm. that um, the Messiah would come to the Jewish people and bring salvation. It says, "Look, salvate your salvation is coming." But again, it has nothing to do with the Christian notion of salvation. It's interesting, by the way, that there's nothing in this verse about Jerusalem, per se. Somehow the list maker speaks about salvation would arrive in Jerusalem, because you can see they're sort of reworking the whole story around mm. this passage in Matthew, where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. But the, the passage in Isaiah is not saying anything about the Messiah who's going to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. Um, the passage is speaking about the ultimate salvation of the Jewish people, which will take place through the agency of the Messiah. Um, but when it speaks about his reward um, and his gifts, this is speaking about the Almighty, the, the Tetragrammaton. This is the, the, this is the God, God himself. Mm. And um, it's speaking about 
when when the salvation comes to the Jewish people, it's going to be with God's reward and mm. His gifts accompanying Him, God Himself. Yes. Um, so the the proof text here is interesting because it's from Zechariah. It's from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Yeah. It's it's not actually quoting from Isaiah, and it says, and we will be getting to this passage eventually. But it says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just." And having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Yeah, so it's this is a messianic prophecy in Zechariah. Um, mm-hmm, beautiful. But it's speaking about your king. And again, the, the, the reality is that despite all of the protestations of Christians, Jesus was not the king of the Jews. Mm. Um, he was claiming that was why he was executed. Um, mm. But, you know, it's one thing to claim that you're the king of the Jews, another thing that you are the king of the Jews. He was never anointed as the king. He never served as a king. He never carried out any of the functions of a king. Um, there was nothing that all uh, w- would make him a king of the Jews other than, again, this sort of assertion, this insistence that he was the king of the Jews. And more importantly, he didn't bring salvation. You know, the Bible here is speaking about this king who will come to bring salvation. There was mm. no salvation with Jesus. There was no salvation in the biblical sense of the redemption of the people from their physical uh, exile, from their suffering, from their torment. We know that with the coming of Jesus, things got much worse for the Jewish people. Yeah. Now, uh, before I jump too far ahead, because the next one uh, is Isaiah chapter 63, I just want to go back and just read uh, what's this? This is uh, chapter 60, verse 16. It says, you shall drink the milk of the nations and milk the breast of kings. It goes on to say, you shall know that I, the Lord, the Tetragrammaton there, I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Also, uh, chapter 61, verse 5. And you mentioned this, actually, when we were going through Isaiah chapter 53, because it does mention Israel in the singular and then refers to them as the servants, plural. It says, you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants, plural, of our God. You shall eat the riches of the nations, uh, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double, everlasting joy shall be theirs. Beautiful. Right, so what, what happens in Christian thought is that these all are pushed off to the second coming of Jesus. Um, mm. You know, again, the second coming doctrine is a very clear acknowledgement that Jesus did not fulfill any of the real messianic prophecies. And, you know, that there has to be then, you know, the, the idea that he'll fulfill them when he comes back. Um, mm. Again, the the problem, just logically speaking, is that um, Christians are not saying that we should believe in Jesus when he comes back and makes things clear. They're insisting that he was the Messiah now, before he fulfilled any of the prophecies about the Messiah. Um, so all of these latter chapters in Isaiah, um, you know, they're just all of them are, are describing the messianic future, which none of this has happened yet. Mm. That, that's really the great weakness of you know all of these um, passages appearing on this list you know the list maker is essentially quoting 
passages that simply have not come to pass yet, and so they haven't been fulfilled. But that doesn't stop the fact that there's some similar words or similar themes or similar phrases, and the next uh, one is a good example of that. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 3. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon, upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. Now, the corresponding verse is a bit of revelation. That's always exciting. I love to get in that. It says Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, and it says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The uh, prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is a vesture dipped in blood. I really had to scratch my head when I, when I read this one. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it, it's it's such an incredible distortion, really, of what is going on here. Um, you know, basically, um, what's happening in Isaiah chapter 63 is that mm -hmm. it's describing um, how God himself will avenge the torture and persecution of his people. Um, and it's really clear. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty Old Testament kind of God here, trampling his enemies in his anger and grounding them underfoot in his fury. Mm. Um, so what you really see here is uh, a real terrestrial, this world kind of God taking care of his people and, you know, and really taking care of their enemies in a very, very real way. And you know, it, it's, it's describing something which has nothing to do with the associations that Christians make with this. Mm. Um, it says, by the way, that he's powerful to save, that God is a saving mm. God. So in discussing how he's going to save his people, you know, not from sin here, he's saving them from their enemies, and he's going to take vengeance upon the enemies. In the mind of the Christian, this becomes, um, you know, the, the references to blood-stained garments and blood, the garments mm. dipped in blood. So they see in this... The, the the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah, who has you know blood all over his garments because he's been tortured and sacrificed to save people from their sins. This is not speaking about an individual who is dying for the sins of others who will believe in him. That's basically just taking a lot of Christian theology and superimposing it and forcing it really upon a mm. passage that's really discussing something entirely different, totally entirely different. different. Oh, and there's so much gold in these chapters. My goodness, we're going to have to jump over them because we're running out of time, but we're almost there. The next one on the list is Isaiah chapter 63, verses 8 and 9. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became, he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Corresponding 
passage is, uh, according to the list, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 to 40. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it says, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you took me in and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say to him and say, Lord, when, when did we do these things? And uh, it goes on and, and he says, well, as much as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. That's, by the way, that's a different sort of message, isn't it? I mean, to the Christian message, shouldn't it say the king should say to the ones on the right hand, come, you, you blessed of the, the father who, who invited Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior? That, might have, that might have been better. Might have been better for me, yeah. as far as Christian theology was concerned. In terms of Jewish theology, this is uh, actually one Pretty of good. the most beautiful verses in yeah. the Bible. First of all, it's very, very clear when we read this chapter of Isaiah uh, that it's speaking about the Almighty, the Tetragrammaton, is used in verse 7. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- the one who is afflicted with the afflicted, um, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, in all of the, their suffering, in all of the suffering of his people, God himself suffers. Um, he feels that pain. Is an incredible, incredible um, statement. You know, the, mm. the, one of the things that Christianity tried to do was to paint a God that's more in touch with us, um, you know, to sort of take this, what, what often seems to be a remote, transcendent God and bring him down to earth more so that we can feel there's more of a involvement in our lives. Isaiah says that this God, who we don't see, is very intimately involved with our lives, mm. and he suffers along with us, and you know, that's an incredible statement to make that, you know, um, because it's very anthropomorphic. We don't normally speak about God having emotions. Um, but certainly in some way, um, it's not pleasing to God when his children are being persecuted, when his uh, the apple of his eye is suffering. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting that they say one of the symbolisms that um, God showed Moses in the burning bush was that he really feels the suffering of his people uh, in Israel, that God, you know, appeared out of this burning bush. It was, a, you know, some kind of a, a small, they say sometimes a thorn bush, but um, it, it, it becomes in rabbinic literature a symbol of God himself who feels the suffering of the people in his, of Israel who were tortured in Egypt. And so mm. this is actually a very, very beautiful passage, which again, it, it identifies the Tetragrammaton here, the, the Almighty, the Creator, who is very intimately involved with his people and suffers along with them. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't describe here the, the Messiah. It's speaking clearly about God himself. Mm-hmm. So, the next one, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Corresponding verse according to the list. We've got a few. Yes. Michael, here, here they come. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 to 7. It says, Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. I'll continue on. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, 
uh, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And finally, we're back in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, those three verses apparently are a, uh, a fulfillment. And uh, the fulfillment, according to the list, is that the elect shall inherit. So I'm, I'm not really quite sure what's going on here. It, it, it sounds to me... Uh, like the smacks of replacement theology, um, mm-hmm. that somehow the 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 elect are going to be not uh, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the elect now becomes those who believe in the Messiah, um, or at least the Christian this Messiah. Is, yeah, this is specifically what it says in verse seven of Romans eleven. It says, "What then? You know, it says Israel have not obtained what it seeks, but the elect has." Yeah, and that's not Israel. So. <laughs> the actual passage in Isaiah says the exact opposite, really. It, it's, it's speaking specifically about Israel, my chosen ones, and my servants. I mean, that throughout Isaiah, God has described Israel as his servants. Throughout the Bible, Israel is his servant, chosen one. And so the only way you're able to you know, uh, sort of squeeze in a replacement theology here is to say that this has all been changed and that the servants and the chosen ones are no longer Israel. It's now they've been, mm. now been replaced by the church. Um, again, you know, you basically are left here with an argument. Um, you know, the Christian, or at least the Christian replacement theologian, is going to insist that Israel now has been replaced, has been in the, the ones that are really going to inherit will be the elect who are the believers in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jews will be left out in the cold uh, unless they also come to faith. Um, so, I, I, again, I'm not quite sure why this is considered to be a, uh, a messianic prophecy that is clear that Jesus fulfilled. All you really have is uh, you know, certain assertions here about Christian theology. Mm, uh, kind of weird. Yeah. But uh, that's not uncharacteristic of this list. The final one! How about this? Thank in God. Isaiah, this is this will conclude this uh, this program. Isaiah chapter sixty-five, verses seventeen to twenty-five. Michael, it says, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice." In Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man uh, who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Uh, I think there's some translational issues here, yes, Michael. Uh, yes, there are. <laughs> I'm going to just switch to another Bible. Is that okay? I, I have... Uh, have you got it open? Yes. Never again will come from there a young child or old man who will not fill his days. Mm. For the youth of 100 years will die... And a sinner at the age of a hundred years will be cursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and have another inhabit. They will not plant and have another eat. For the lifetime of my people will be like the lifetime of the tree. And my chosen ones will wear out their handiwork. They will not struggle in vain nor produce for futility. For they, will, they, for they are the offspring of the blessed ones 
of Hashem, of God. And their descendants will be with them. It will be that before they call, I will answer. While they yet speak, I will hear. Wolf and lamb will graze as one. A lion like cattle will eat straw. A snake's food will be dirt. They will not afflict or harm nor destruction in all my holy mountains, says Hashem. That's sort of mm. reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 11. Now, by the way, yes, it is. Uh, this is the verse, I do believe, verse 25, the last verse that you read, we quite often hear of the lion lying down with the lamb, but that, we don't have that in the Tanakh, if I'm correct. It says that the wolf shall and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Am I, yeah. am I correct about that? That's correct, yeah. yeah um, I think, I think thing, Woody Allen said... That the lion will lie down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, they, yeah. what they say is interesting, by the way. Um, vegetarians say yeah. that you see from here that in the future, even the animals um, mm-hmm. will become vegetarians. Uh, it says here that the wolf and the lamb will graze as one. A lion, like cattle, will eat straw. Um, mm. Not going to be eating. I, I have some. I have vegetarian friends that claim that. You, you, you're a vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, I would be interested in your opinion on that because that, if that is true, that we're getting off the topic, but this is so interesting. If that is true, uh, it conflicts with the uh, with the sacrificial system, right? I mean, we, of course, how do we explain that? Well, <clears throat> it's going to be for vegetarians an exception to the rule <laughs> we're going to we're going to have to be um less purists as vegetarians um so you think primarily this will be the case uh we will be primarily vegetarian with the exception of the sacrificial system yes i i think that's what's going to be the case i think that wow. uh, at least that's how i see it i see it uh you know that because you know, we have to do what God wants, and if, if God's will is that we, at certain times, consume sacrifices, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly, and hopefully in the messianic age, there's not going to be a lot of sinning going on, so mm-hmm. we're not going to be bringing a lot of sin offerings, but for example, there'll be the Paschal Lamb. So yes. what I would say is that, uh, and you have to eat, basically, how much do you have to eat? You have to eat a, an olive's volume. So if I have to eat an olive's volume of the Paschal lamb once a year, I'll do it very happily. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. <laughs> okay. Well, there it is. No, now, that, that'll be interesting to people. And I do believe, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but I think uh, uh, that theory was first put to me by Dr. James Tabor, and I, I think he's a vegetarian as well. Yes. Uh, interesting. And, and he probably has articles on that. Now, the corresponding verse, in any case, to, the, to uh, that which we just read, Second Peter chapter three verse thirteen. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Revelation, once again, I think that's the third time we've been there. Revelation chapter twenty one verse one. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Uh, also, there was no more sea. Well, that's not fun if there's no more sea. I'm surfing, no, I really like to see. That's odd. Anyway, but is it really talking about, uh, you know, wiping this earth and, and the heavens, uh, uh, you know, off the map, so to speak, and starting again? Or is it a renewal of the existing? You know what? It's not a, a thousand percent clear what it's speaking about. Mm. Um, and, and you will find different approaches to exactly how to... Uh, you know, unravel these verses. But the one thing that's uh, 100% clear is that it, it hasn't, hasn't happened, happened yet. yet. <laughs> right. So 
We'll see when it happens. Um, look, even the Book of Revelation, we know that the Book of Revelation is essentially it's it's a it's a vision about what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, a fulfillment of what's happened yet. So what I would say in terms of this being a prophecy about Jesus is what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? It, it hasn't happened. <laughs> why is it on? You know, why is it on the list? <laughs> it shouldn't be on the list. This is basically something which is totally irrelevant. Uh, you know, if we're trying to ascertain whether Jesus is the Messiah, it doesn't make any sense to talk about something that's going to happen, and we don't really understand what it's talking about, that's going to happen in the future from the present tense. Um, mm. We're dealing with Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. So passages in the Bible that are describing uh, events that have not yet happened by the year 2015 don't really help us, uh, you know, with any kind of evaluation of Jesus. Um, mm. So... It's not really clear what exactly is going on here. I think that um, you'll find among uh, Jewish commentaries um, some that take sort of a more radical ap- approach to a, a literally a totally new kind of world, um, a, a more spiritual kind of existence. Some people take a more you know, conservative approach and say that really there's not going to be much of a change. Uh, it's describing things more allegorically. You know, they'll basically mm. be the kind of world we're living in now, but it'll be a peaceful world. Um, it's funny, though, isn't it? Because I think what what uh, what it's saying is that by being on the list, uh, Carmen, who revised this list, I suppose she looks at this and she says, "Well, you see, it will happen, not because it's in the Tanakh, but it will happen because in the New Testament it confirms that it will happen. Therefore, it will be a prophecy fulfilled, and therefore I'm going to put it in the list. I guess." That's yeah, what, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's yeah. exactly what's happening. And again, for a committed Christian, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But the whole purpose of the list really is to make a case to non-Christians to say, look, there is firm, strong, uh, compelling evidence that Jesus was the Messiah because he fulfilled messianic prophecy. And you know, if the only way these prophecies work is if you accept uncritically the you know the starting point of Christianity before you even examine these prophecies, it's sort of circular reasoning, meaning that mm-hmm. it only works if you accept our premise that Jesus was the Messiah. It sort of reminds me of a of a comic routine by by uh, Steve Martin. He used to say, "I'm going to teach you how to have a million dollars and not pay any taxes." He said, first, get a million dollars. So, you know, fine, you know, but that's that's the hard part, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it really, you know, to engage in this sort of tautology here of circular reasoning where, you know, you have to accept at the outset that Jesus was the Messiah. And once you accept that, all of these prophecies will make sense. Well, that's not how mm. things work. You have yeah. to, you know, begin with tabla rosa. You have to begin with a question mark. Was Jesus the Messiah prophesied by the Hebrew scriptures or not? Then you have to ask mm. yourself, what really are genuine, authentic, you know, indisputable messianic prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures? And did Jesus actually fulfill them? Not, you know, you know, is there a belief that when he comes back, he's going to possibly fulfill them? You know, I would say that's really not on the table. Um, so I think that what we saw in these last chapters of Isaiah was, you know, sort of the weakest list so far that we've seen. Because, the, you know, these are generally speaking passages that have not yet transpired and so they don't really help um, you know a claim that's discussing someone that came 2,000 years ago and it doesn't add credibility to the list but I think that went away a long time ago in any case 
Uh, next week, we are kicking off from, at least on the new Revised Standard uh, version, the, the list that's been through the Refiner's Fire that appears on therefinersfire.org. Number 232, we're, no, 233, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. On the original list, that kicks off from number 289. Boy, uh, 290, in fact. That means we've got less than 70, 75 to go. That's exciting. Maximum. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you, my friend, Rabbi Michael Skoback of Jews for Judaism.ca. Jews for Judaism.ca is the website. I highly recommend people go there and uh, have a look around. There's a, an enormous amount of resources available there, including, of course, a link to the, the YouTube channel. Uh, and boy, there's a lot of lectures there given by your fine self, uh, Rabbi Michael Skoback. So thank you for coming back on the program. My great pleasure, John. Always a privilege to have you. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.